This is Oh Dear Boss from June 16th, 2019, and we're joined on the show today by Tom Westcott, the author and raconteur, whose books include uh, Ripper Confidential and The Bank Holiday Murders. How are you doing today, Tom? Well, I am doing awesome, uh, Jonathan Mingus. It is Father's Day today, as you and I are talking. We're both fathers, but... Um, clearly no one wants anything to do with us, and that's why we're here recording a Ripper cast. <laughs> Absolutely true. Uh, so, uh, have you read any good books lately? Uh, I have. I have. Um, you know, I read a, I read a lot of, uh, fiction lately, thrillers and mysteries, but on the Ripper front, I did read a, a really good book by a fellow named of John Malcolm called The Whitechapel Murders of 1888, Another Dead End. And, uh, um, of course, you know, it's not John's first book. You know, anything by him is going to be, uh, fun, informative, and, and slightly irreverent, but never irrelevant. And so, uh, that's a book. If you can still get a copy, I don't know if you can or not. I think they're numbered. Uh, they're limited number. He likes to do things, interestingly. Um, but if you can get a copy, I suggest, uh, people listening do that. And, uh, and it is a Kosminski book, um, you know, and I'm not a, a huge Kosminski person, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good ripper book. And that's what I think the world needs more right now are good ripper books that are not written from a formula. Uh, there's too many of those. And, uh, you know, people talk about, on the forums, JTR forums, casebook.org, and even to some extent on Facebook. Um, you know, you've seen a lot of complaints in the last six months or so from, um, uh, oddly enough, Ripper authors and their sycophants, you, uh, talking about how us Ripperologists, you know, are basically just uh, a bunch of assholes and that you know, we, we won't, st- we, we band together against outsiders. Uh, and maybe there is some truth in that. Maybe there is a little bit of truth, but, um, we only really do that if the person in question, outsider or not an outsider, um, is disrespecting our subject. That's how I see it. Right. Back to John Malcolm. We're going to yeah. have him on the show. Um, to discuss his book, uh, hopefully sometime here in the near future. And he did put out a Kindle version of it. So. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that because I, I, when he first announced it, I, of course, was one of the first in line to get a copy. And it's a very handsome, um, well produced hardback, which is. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, you know, for self published or independently published books, you don't see hardbacks too often. I've never published one. Um, but that's John Malcolm. Like I said, he goes against the grain. That's one of the things I love about him. Um, his book that he put out a decade ago uh, was a big influence on my decision uh, with bank holiday murders. Well, I won't say influence, but it, it was an encouragement to me, and uh, to know that you know, hey man, you can you can write a book that doesn't follow the typical Ripper formula. And put it out there and people, if it's, if the material in there is good and, and worth reading, people will love it. Um, you know, I've been saying for years, I noticed 15 years ago, there was a, a distinct formula to writing suspects books, suspect books that I was hoping we would see broken. And, um, 
you know, a, a suspect book came out just this week. And uh, apparently that formula is, is still uh, in vogue because it's being followed. And it's very hard for us to read those books. I'm talking about books where, um, and if you're thinking of writing a Ripper book, pay attention to this. Uh, yeah, what, what kind of formula, what, what it's, what's the formula that we should avoid? A formula you should avoid um, is one where it's just you start off with an introductory chapter followed by the history and geography of the East End, you know, and then generic short chapters on the victims of, you know, all, and this takes up, this consumes a massive portion of, of most suspect books. And it's just fluff because it's stuff we've read before. If you're going to do that, make sure those chapters are packed with interesting observations or tidbits of information that we don't get from other books. But they never do that. They're always just kind of throwing. They're just there to pad the book. And then what, what you end up with is an essay um, on the suspect. This is where all the new stuff is that everyone gets the book for, um, is the new stuff on the suspect, and even that a lot of times is padded with background, heavy background information on whatever their profession was and this and that. But generally speaking, if you look at most suspect books of the last 15 years, the argument for the suspect could have just been an essay in Ripperologist magazine, honestly. There was no need to make it into a book, but of course that's done because the author's proud and wants to be the, wants to see their name on a book cover and wants to sell a bunch of copies. They rarely do, but that's what they think will happen. And uh, so that's a formula, because that's the pe- you're, the audience you're writing the book for are people like me and you and the folks on the forums and Casebook. And we're bored by all that stuff. We just we just in, you know, uh, generally flip right to the, the new stuff, the suspect stuff, and read that. And rarely is that ever compelling. Um, and now, Cor- now Cornwell, have- um, who was the, f- I, I would imagine that um, Portrait of a Killer, the, the first edition of it when it came out, was really one of the first um, highly anticipated and publicized Ripper books released with a bunch of fanfare um, in like the internet forum days. And you got to admit, like a, an author like Cornwell, yeah, she she started, she followed your formula that you're describing somewhat. But no, she really. She's um, an exception. The, the, yeah, the, the, I was going to say the information on Sickert. You know, there's a massive amount of, inter, of information about Sickert in her books. So, well, well here's the difference with Cornwell: is she'd written. Um, you know, a dozen or two dozen books by the time she wrote. She's a fantastic author. I, her first book on Sickert was a phenomenal read. I remember reading that book and uh, <clears throat> just really enjoying it, even though I knew everything in it was fake or false. Uh, and it was. I mean, it was, the thing was just riddled with, with errors. Um, it was still an extraordinarily entertaining read. And, uh, and that almost made me forgive the errors, uh, because the book delivered at least on one of two fronts. It held your interest and was entertaining. That's one. And then the other, the other thing a Ripper book should deliver, uh, you know, should be, um, 
new information. Now, and if you're arguing for a suspect, here's the thing. Uh, let's say you put out a suspect book on Bob Smith, and on the forums, on the casebook, even if none of us are convinced Bob Smith was the Ripper, if in the course of telling us about the Ripper murders and Bob Smith, you provide us new information uh, or new insights um, you know, relative to the Ripper murders, the investigation, we're going to love your book. Um, I mean, think about Stuart Evans's Tumblety book from 95. It didn't convince mo- many of us that Tumblety was the Ripper. But man, what an amazing book, just packed front to back with um, stuff we had not seen in other Ripper books. That, right there, there's a template for a good um, Ripper book, a uh, Ripper suspect book right there. I've always said uh, that raised the bar of suspect books because it was packed front to back with new stuff because it was written by someone who really knew, the, who spent time knowing the subject, who spent time researching, who spent, and most importantly, time giving thought to the subject, a lot of thought to the subject they were writing about, and that ends up in the book. Um, and so when you read it, you're like, man, this, this is just, you know, I've never seen the, this in Rumbelo or Beg or, or Sugden. <clears throat> and because of that, you love the book, even if you don't love the suspect. If, if you can do that, you've succeeded remarkably. And rare, and that's a rare success these days in Ripperology. And it shouldn't be. But, um, my thought process is, uh, in Ripper, you know, number one, if you're going to write a Ripper book, Get to know your target audience. Uh, I don't, I, it's beyond my imagination how someone could spend the time to write a book, but not spend any time in that community on the internet. Um, why would you not want to, you know, on the forums or on the casebook, uh, maybe running theories past people or, or asking them, what do you think of this? Or do you have any additional information? But we see it time and again. And and that's where these authors like Hallie Rubenhold recently comes in on the defensive. So, so she knows enough about the Ripper community to know her book's going to get, you know, if, you ha- if you're putting out a book that's factually inaccurate and you know you are, you have to reasonably expect you're going to get torn to shreds. And that's why you see some authors go preemptively on the defensive before any of us even know what you know, they're just automatically saying, I'm going to get torn to shreds. The Ripper people are evil. They're, they're bad. Um, and that's an unfair statement if, if you've done your homework and are putting out something valid. You know what I mean? Uh, now that you will have critics, you know, I, I mean, I've been in the Ripper community since on the internet since its inception. So I knew when I was putting out bank holiday murders, my number one, my biggest fear was nobody would care. Nobody would talk about it. Um, but I thought if they do talk about it, there's, you know, this is going to ruffle feathers. Um, and I am going to get some heat and, and I, and I knew going in, although I tried not to have any mistakes in the book, um, you're going to have some. And sometimes it's not even a mistake when you wrote it. When I wrote Bank Holiday Murders, uh, writing about Pearly Paul, I only had so much information to work from. And because of bank holiday murders, um, researchers went out and looked for more information and found a bunch. And in doing so, they found new information that uh, contradicted things that I wrote in bank holiday murders, which is great um, because, you know, 
But that doesn't mean I made a mistake because I didn't have that information. It didn't exist prior to me writing the book. Uh, you know, one person's not going to find everything. So, but to me, that was a mark that I did something right if it made people interested enough to go out and search for new information about the stuff I published. Um, some of which, incidentally, you know, confirmed my speculations or enhanced arguments I was making. Other stuff they found totally shot down certain things. So when I do another edition, I'll be able to incorporate all that and I'll have a stronger book because of it. But I knew that I knew all of this going in. This was my hope. I think I even put it in the book that I hope this will happen. I hope I'm proved wrong. I hope I'm proved right because that means people are still looking and still finding new things. And, uh, and it did happen and I was grateful for it. Um, do you think that there's almost like two sets of types of Ripper authors to where, <clears throat> the, I mean, the ones that follow the, the bad formula um, are also generally the ones that don't engage on the message boards, that don't um, have the right people read the book before it's published um, and then end up having a bunch of errors exposed. I mean, just based off of a pr Amazon preview, a copy of, you know, I mean, there, right. there are enough, um, like I'm specifically talking about Drew Gray's book because this has happened in this last week. Um, his book, and it, that's who you were referring to when you were talking about formula, uh, you know, tired of yeah. like, doing this, this uh, boring formula anymore. Um, but then you have authors like yourself and John Malcolm, you had mentioned, that are um, embedded in the Ripper community already, who, who I wouldn't say that you know better because any outside author should, you know, glance at the message boards to see, you know, oh, you know, what, what happened when Patricia Cornwell's book came out? Well, that's still on casebook.org. You can read all of that in their archive section. Um, what happened when, when Wesson Davies's book came out? It, it was several aspects of his book were, were, um, proven wrong within a matter of days. Um, so that should prepare even the outside quote unquote author for what they might want to do prior to publishing a Ripper book. But my kind of question is, do those types of authors care? Do, do those types of authors that will still, you know, write a book in the tired old formula that you don't like anymore? Um, are, are we really their intent? Do they think that we're their intended audience or what? I mean, no, well, it's bizarre. I think no. Number one, I don't think there. Are, some of them aren't even aware that there's a Ripper community, um, and uh, others are aware, and they don't. They don't care. Like uh, you talk about Drew Gray, he's a professor, he's a doctor, he has a PhD, <clears throat> and academia is kind of like the military. They have their own culture. They have their own uh, vocabulary that they use. Uh, everything short of a secret handshake. But, um, you know, it was kind of ballsy for Dr. Gray, honestly, to write a suspect book in Ripperology because, 
you know, that's not something they do. That's not what historians concern themselves with. You know, L. Perry Curtis wrote, uh, you know, he's a, I think a historian and he wrote a book about the press and that's generally how historians that look, they look at bigger picture type stuff. Um, whereas, you know, Drew went, went in, you know, guns blazing saying, I'm putting out a suspect book. So that's kind of ballsy for the academic world. Um, and I, you know, I have to assume the reason he did it is he's really interested in this particular suspect that he did not, that, that one of his students brought, Andrew Wise brought all his research to, to Dr. Gray and, and said, Hey, you know, would you look at this and help me write a book? And I think that's how he got into it. Into right, this. yeah. And yeah, yeah so, we should so make Dr. that point that, that Drew Gray has a co-author. And yeah. so I don't know how much is Drew's and how much is Mr. Wise's. Um, I, I would say probably, this is a guess, but I think with Dr. Gray, I get the sense from looking at the book that some of the history and geography sections uh, on just the, the general East End stuff Probably a lot of that was his. Certainly he, in his blog post mentioned, he wrote the, one of the final chapters where he's talking about ripperology and how the ripper is perceived in the media, you know, and the kind of typical academic, you know, political, politically correct grandstanding they kind of have to do nowadays, I think. Um, but, uh, that was his stuff. And I think the Hardeman, uh, stuff was would probably be an Andrew Weiss. That's what I've gleaned from seeing um, Dr. Gray's blog post about his book. And, uh, you know, the thing is now, of course, Dr. Gray's name is on the cover. Uh, he's promoting the book. And, and one might expect a historian to vet his sources and not just take blind faith in a former student who brought this to him that everything has been vetted and all of this. And that's easy enough to do with... You know, like if I were Dr. Gray, I'd be like, okay, this is interesting. So now apparently the, the crux of the argument for James Hardiman being Jack the Ripper and the Tim's torso murderer was his profession. Um, which according to Dr. Gray was that he was, um, uh, you know, he slaughtered horses. He then carted their body parts around town. And then once they were, portions were turned into cat's meat, he then went out with a different vehicle and sold cat's meat to people. It's a lot for one guy to do. Um, and within like the five minutes of the book being released, people who figured out that, um, that none of that was possible or factually accurate or proved. And therefore, you know, if your book hinges on one big idea, you'd better make sure that big idea stands up to scrutiny. Um, my books, you know, I had like in Ripper Confidential, I had like a hundred different big ideas in there. So a diligent researcher can knock down two or three and it doesn't, it doesn't affect the overall book's validity. Um, but when you're doing a suspect book, generally it hinges on one, two or three big ideas. You can call those your pillars. Uh, and you better make sure those pillars are strong or the entire thing will come tumbling down. And we've seen that happen time and time again. Right. Um, and that's not because there's a bunch of ripperologists, you know, sharpening their claws, um, who hate you or, or want to see you destroyed. Um, they're not, if they, if they wanted that, they would go so far as to make up stuff. 
to destroy your reputation. And I don't see that. I see things get heated, like with me and certain individuals. Uh, when we go back and forth, they might over-exaggerate, say, oh, well, you know, I proved this thing wrong, therefore your entire book is discredited. And I would point out that, well, that's clearly not true because that has no bearing on this or this or that. And, uh, you know, you have those kind of back and forths. But generally, in the end, people are just concerned about accuracy. And this can help us in the long run. It's okay if we get a reputation for being hard asses. If that makes future authors stand up and want to avoid getting their book blown apart on the day of release, um, and it forces them to take a little more care and maybe reach out to people. See, here's the thing. I've heard people say, well, I don't go on the forums of the casebook because they're all um, such minutia-oriented, you know, um, obsessive, this or that. Here, you can have a membership to JTR forums and Casebook and never post. You don't have to post. Um, what you can do is go on there and read, read, read. And then if you find certain posters who you go, well, this person seems to be producing information that's relevant to what I'm working on, then you just go to their profile and say, you know, and click on all threads created by this person, all posts by this person, and study and make notes and when you have questions, you can reach out to them in private message and ask. Um, you can ask for further sources. Like if Drew Gray's writing a book on the torso murders and he's going to use MJ Tro's book, then he needs to make sure that that book is held in high regard. And it, you know, and people enjoy it, but it, it's known that it's full of inaccuracies. It's reliant predominantly upon newspaper coverage. So now that he knows that, he needs to find out, and it's not hard to do, find out who are people that are experts on the torso murders. Well, in his book, he um, quotes from an article written by Deborah Arif and Rob Clack that's clearly authoritative. So now he has the names of two people who are authoritative on the torso murders. To my knowledge, he, hasn't, he, he didn't reach out to either of them for additional information or saying, can you look at my manuscript and make sure the other sources I've drawn from are accurate. Now, they may they may tell him to screw off. I don't know. But he can at least then put in his book, I reached out to these experts and they declined to help me, so I hope this I've made the information as accurate as I personally can. Um, but I doubt those people would have told him to screw off. I, I think they would have answered questions. I've, both of them have answered a lot of questions for me. I've bugged them quite a few times over the years. Yeah, and, and, that then, and then they would say, oh, well, you also have a lot of information on Knackers and Cats Meets Men and Harris and Barber, and why don't you talk to Gary Barnett? Yes. And, and he'll be able to point out, you know, any possible errors that you might have made. One of the errors that um, are basically one of one of the pillars that you had referred to in the suspect theory is that Hardiman was a knacker, which is a slaughterer of horses for the meat that's intended to be fed to cats or dogs, uh, which is separate from a cat's meats man, which is the guy who shows up the morning after the horse has been slaughtered by the knacker and loads his cart and goes out and sells it. And in the census reports, from what I understand, 
which is the sole basis for saying that Hardiman was a knacker, is that he was described as a cat's meats man or a dealer in horse flesh. And the word knacker was written in uh, above the uh, description of his occupation or next to right. in some cases. But it doesn't seem that they bothered to look to see what the descriptions of other cat's meats men or dealers in horse flesh occupations looked like in the census reports because it seems like it was routine for that distinction to be made that the dealer in horse flesh knacker meant it was for dogs and cats as opposed to the dealer in horse flesh without the word knacker meant that it was for human consumption right um and then the uh as gary did like you said pretty immediately after the preview on Amazon was released, discovered 16-year-old girls who were dealers in horse flesh, 66-year-old ladies who were dealers in horse flesh, um, pushing a cart and selling it on the street, having no involvement whatsoever in the actual slaughtering of the animals. Well, and that's what cinched it for me. Like, if you read the thread on forums, I'm grappling with the idea that Gary Barnett was so able, you know, who had, who at that time had not even, he's, I think just today received his copy of the book. He was doing all of this based off of the free peer review on Amazon and what other people had told him. And he's an expert in like, uh, the, the horse meat people from that era, Harrison Barber, the slaughterhouses, um, so this apparently tipped him off and I was questioning him on there. I'm like, now are we sure Drew is wrong? What are, what are his evidences? And, and I said on there, I was like, you said that he produced a document in the book that shows Hardiman referred to as a knacker. So now you have to disprove his evidence. That's that I, cause you know, you can't just call an author wrong unless you show they're wrong. Um, I've had people try to do that to me and then they were wrong and it's, and it's rather obnoxious and time wasting. But I also know this about Gary Barnett and, and I've wanted to strangle him in the past on numerous occasions because, uh, but he is a hard and fast researcher. He is good. He is. And so when Gary Barnett stands up and says, this is wrong, I, I'm going to stop and pay attention. And, and I, and I say, but Gary, let's, you know, draw back the horses, pardon the pun. Um, you're saying he's wrong. Show me. And he did. He showed all of us. He came and posted, uh, images from the census of women and written right above their name, just like Hardiman's. It said knacker. Now, again, these 66 year old women, they weren't going in with, with, you know, clubs and murdering horses and cutting up their and butchering them for meat. No, they were pushing carts and selling cat's meat. And that totally knocked Hardiman out of of consideration. And the reason, and I should point out, the reason this is significant is because if Hardiman were a slaughterer of horses, if he were someone who was, he would have a big wagon, he'd drive around Whitechapel with horse parts in it. This is the reason he makes a good suspect in Drew's mind for being the torso killers. He could transport human remains mixed in and then deposit them wherever he saw fit. Well, in, as, the, in the, in the knacker portion of that, uh, um, as far as I can understand is because Harrison Barber had locations, uh, at least a half a dozen, if not more all around the city of London 
that could place Hardiman in the vicinity right. of where torso uh, parts were discovered because they weren't all deposited in the East End of London. In fact, most of them weren't. Correct. Um, so it's tying Hardiman to the Harrison Barber Knacker Yards and then uh, pushing the cat's meats carts around on the street, which is what we know Hardiman did. Well, not only so, that, being a horse slaughterer presumably gives Hardiman the anatomical knowledge uh, that Dr. Gray would believe is necessary to eviscerate the ripper victims in the way that they were. As you know, there's the shadow of medical knowledge uh, surrounding whoever killed. There's certainly an anatomical knowledge, but that, to me that's different than medical knowledge. But that that would give him the anatomical knowledge necessary to pull off the ripper murders. It gives him the Harrison Barber locations and the transportation and the coverage necessary to deposit the torso victims. So being a horse slaughterer is integral and central to the thesis in this book that James Hardiman was both the Jack the Ripper and the Torso Killer. If you take that away, not only his his horse slaughtering, but his connection to Harrison Barber, what are you left with? Um, you know, what what else is there? Right. You know? So that'll that become the next level now that Gary Barnett has his actual copy of the book. We'll see what else he comes up with. But James Hardiman's not a new suspect, I want to mention. Um, a fellow by the name of Rob Hills for years published essays in Ripperologist uh, about James Hardiman. I, I believe the first ever digital, um, it was either the, the last print or the first digital had, because I can still picture it, the Cat's Meat Man cover. <laughs> and it's a, And it was another article in Rob Hills. And this is a suspect that just never caught fire, you know. Um, but to be fair, Rob Hills wasn't suggesting any of this stuff you and I are talking about. Uh, he said Hardiman's a cat's meat man and, and, and said here's some biographical. I mean, Hardiman is a legitimate person um, who, and it's been years since I read those articles, but, you know, he was around that area. It's not, he's not a terrible ripper suspect. But Dr. Gray's book is not just saying he's Jack the Ripper, but also the Tim's torso murderer. And this is something few Ripperologists have, have dared do. Um, doc, you know, Richard Gordon, um, you know, he did three books on George Chapman and accused him of everything but, you know, the murder of John Bonet throughout the course of those three books, including he wrote one of two Current, you know, currently two extant books on the torso murders. One was written by him, and then one by M.J. Trow, but or Tro. I don't know. Is it Tro or Trow? I don't know. But uh, anyway, so the but we don't want to pick on uh, the reason we're talking about Doctor Gray. In case someone li is listening to this in the year 2022, it's the book just came out. It's what people are talking about, um, and it's raised. It's stirred a lot of old feelings. And we're seeing some of people like Neil Bell um, speaking out against, I don't want to say against Ripperology because that would be inaccurate. He's, he's speaking out against what's called, in, what he calls entrenchment behavior on the forums, on Casebook. And that's where everyone bands together against a supposed common enemy. And, and that, we've all done it. I mean, like, a, you know, it, what, what he said is, what he's saying is not completely invalid in that, 
we're on the, you know, we're ready to tear apart any suspect theory. Um, and so if you're going to put one out, you have to be prepared. But this, I disagree with the term entrenchment behavior because it does suggest that we view an outsider as an enemy. And the point I made on the boards is I'm an insider. I'm a member of the boards, always have been. And when I put out my book in 2014, I got the same treatment. Um, bank holiday murders, ripper confidential essays were written attempting to prove me wrong. And, and, you know, mostly they failed, but they succeeded in certain respects because I made mistakes. Uh, what I didn't do was tell these people to go to hell and block them on Facebook, quit the forums. Um, what I did instead was try to learn from them because if, especially if they're going to take the time to go research, even if it's their purpose is to prove me wrong, I can take advantage of that and learn from what they turn up. And I did. And it's going to make the next editions of those books better. And I thank them for it. And they're not bad people. And I'm friends with most of them. Um, you know, but, uh, and that's because their objective was never to, to, um, even though I thought it might, at times I thought their objective might be to, to try and destroy me or my reputation. That's in the heat of the moment. I realize that's not the case. Uh, they played fair for the most part. They, whenever they said this is wrong, they presented their argument for that. And a lot of times it was a valid argument. And what that taught me is, okay, these individuals, my next book, I need to show it to them before I publish. Cause I do show it to people, but, uh, you know, uh, it's a process in other words, but it will make your book better. And I want to point out, cause I'm talking all about, Drew Gray's errors. I made a whopper in Ripper Confidential that could have been avoided. Um, I was arguing uh, for uh, there being a new victim, a second victim at the night of the Bucks Row murder. The newspapers had a lot of interesting articles about a woman running, uh, screaming bloody murder, bloody handprints on Brady Street, which is just around the corner from where Polly Nichols was murdered. And I got the brilliant idea of, of saying this person probably sought medical attention and did so at the London Hospital, which was very nearby. So I ordered records from the London Hospital. And and I said, here she is. Sure enough, right there was a woman with a big cut on her arm, like a, like a defensive knife wound. And I said, this is her. And And it made sense. She didn't live in the area. What was she doing there in the middle of the night? You know, well, probably prostituting. And... <clears throat> the thing is, is in the book, I put, she went in there on August 31st, because that's what I thought the records, because I had ordered starting on August 31st, 10 p.m., give me everyone who came in. And and I I wrote this whole wonderful essay about this, and da-da-da-da-da-da. And then the book is out, and it's The Usual Suspects, Gary Barnett and Ed Stowe, looking at this and going, wait a minute, that doesn't say... August 31st. That says September 1st. Now, and then they're, you know, demanding an immediate recantation for me and this and that. I'm like, what? It took a while for me to process that because I'm, you know, I'm not above making errors, but this just seemed such a rudimentary, you know, how did I miss this? And the reason I missed it is I was so in the big picture of it all. Um, I'm looking at a hundred different pieces of evidence and correlating it 
And this, but this, you know, this one little thing, this one date I didn't see or it, it didn't process in my brain. <clears throat> and, and it did, you know, it, it, you know, uh, that was embarrassing. Put it that way. It was rather embarrassing, but it took me a while to process it. And then a while to where I could get around to saying, what's the ramification of this? And it does, it didn't destroy my theory. Um, it just weakened it for sure. If she had gone in at August 31st at this time, I think I more or less proved there was a, a ripper victim. But because it's September 1st, either she didn't go into the next day, which doesn't make sense. She didn't, uh, wasn't injured until the next day, or it's, that's just when the cleric entered, created her admission. In other words, it wasn't written in at the moment she was admitted. They went back and wrote it in later and then filled in the date they were writing it in versus the time of her actual admission. Because there's still a lot of other evidence suggesting there was, in fact, a second victim that night, and, and she makes the most sense for that. But um, I should have caught that prior to publication. I did not, and I had to face consequences from for my actions. But the thing is, you don't run from those. You learn from them. And what I'm seeing happening now is people running from these things and it's cowardice. It's weak and I don't like it. And, and I'd lose respect for you if you do that. But I also at the same time, like in the case of Dr. Gray, give him time to process this because he, I can picture him writing the book. He's accepting what his researcher gave him about Hardeman. He's probably not second guessing it. Why would he? He's not the guy researching this. So he accept, why wouldn't he accept he was a horse slaughterer when he sees the word knacker? He didn't think beyond that. And now had he reached out to the boards and talked to these people, made a post and said, I have a theory that this Hardeman, blah, 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 they would have set him straight in five minutes. He didn't do that. But now the book is out and people are telling him, like uh, on the day of release, your central thesis is wrong. He's going to need time to process that in his own mind, to look at it, to clear his own head so that he can see it objectively, and then go, what does this mean for my theory and my book, and what should I do to How should I handle it? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think he needs a little, we owe him, the, owe him a little bit of time to, to process that and then see what he does um, versus his knee-jerk reaction, which is the same as mine, which is, no, you're wrong. And, but, you know, then you, you got to give yourself time to step back and go, oh, sh crap, they're not wrong. <laughs> I'm the one who's wrong. So, and that happens, you know, you're writing a book, there's a million pieces in it. Um, you're not going to get every one of them right. Another thing, uh, back to, um, internet message boards, in this case, it's in particular, it's on JTR forums, but in the past, it's also been on the casebook. As a ripperologist, you know, no ripperologist is an expert on everything. Correct. So I, for instance, am unfamiliar really with the suspect candidacy of James Hardeman. I am not an expert by any stretch of the imagination on the torso murders. Correct. I don't really, I, I wasn't familiar with the difference between a horse slaughterer's yard and a knacker's yard. I wasn't familiar with um, the monopoly that the company Harrison Barber had over the um, 
horse slaughtering and knackering business in London at the time. I didn't know really any of this stuff. And to go through prior to Drew's book and discover, uh, you know, oh, okay, so Drew's coming out with a book about, you know, Thames Torso Murders. Let me try to find all the threads um, to get myself up to speed and familiar with it prior to his book coming out. No, that's just impossible. Um, you can't educate yourself on James Hardiman as a suspect, on Harrison Barber in in the, that company in London, uh, the difference between a cat's meats man and an acker and a horse slaughterer and the Thames Torso <coughs> murders. But what reviewing books in the way that the internet message boards does, you know, we have Paul Begg reviewing books in Ripperologist. That's one thing. The only other um, outlet for Ripper book reviews are the message boards. Correct. And so here in the case of the thread on Drew Gray's book, you have all of this stuff that me as a ripperologist is unfamiliar with all boiled down into one thread, you know, to where um, we know that there is, uh, you know, you can go back 15 years to a Simon Wood post that shows in 18, in an article in 1893, it lists, Queen Victoria Street as a location for one of the Harrison Barber facilities. Um, but then you can read the current thread on JTR forums where people are kind of questioning that and thinking that that might have just been more of a corporate address for them and that maybe that newspaper report from the 1890s was, was incorrect in identifying that location. But it was picked up in Drew Gray's book. And used as a, uh, as a means to f- further attach James Hardiman to a location near to where a torso victim's remains were found, right? So, so this is how a lot of us in the Ripper community do learn about all of these different various parts and pieces that you, we couldn't learn individually necessarily, you know? is through these book reviews uh, and the critiques of new releases. And it and those kinds of threads provide a great service to the community, I think. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we wouldn't know about... Well, of course I agree. Uh, <laughs> Walter Sickert. We wouldn't know about Walter Sickert's um, and him being in France at certain dates in the murders, were it not for a a thread critiquing Patricia Cornwell's book, you know, and, and and Hallie Rubenhold's book is the same way, you know, um, to a much lesser extent, I think than Drew Gray's because she doesn't really posit any, um, you know, substantial, you know, theory that could be backed up with evidence. Um, but, um, but so, so to me, it's like, okay, when an author comes out with a book, that's just one person. Um, yes, I feel bad for Drew because, uh, I like him personally. And, well, so do I, and, yeah. and it, it's unfortunate that these errors made it into print. Um, but, uh, unfortunately, his loss is, is the community's gain. 
because we can educate ourselves on all these different various elements of the late Victorian period in London and Jack the Ripper and Hardiman suspect theory and the torso murders all in an easy digestible place rather than having to go hunt down 50 different threads over the past 15 years to find all this stuff out. You know? Well, and the, the, the unfortunate thing, here's the thing about a book, um, is especially when you are filling the book with how you're a professor and a doctor and a this and a that, is people will, people buy a book to learn. They don't go to, they don't scour and research. They buy a book. And so anyone buying this book is going to assume it's authoritative on its subject because that's, that's the, um, agreement that an author has with their reader is, is you can trust me. And I mean, and that doesn't mean readers go in blindly expecting it to be completely error free. There is no book to my knowledge that is. But on a general term, you expect it to be authoritative. And, and same with a documentary. And that's why, you know, uh, Charles Cross is now like one of the top ripper suspects because of a very well made documentary. <laughs> There's not even a real book on him. But this is an agreement you have with your viewer or your reader. And that's a high responsibility. And I took that seriously. And, you know, and that means two things doing my best to make my book error free, number one. And then two, when the inevitable error is brought to light, you know, acknowledge it. And it, uh, and so that's, that's what I've done. That's not asking a lot because you got to remember, here's the thing about a book. It is a product. It is a product that is manufactured for sale and for profit. Um, if you are, you know, if you make a mistake and you go, okay, well, I realize my book is entirely a piece of shit. Um, and everything about it is wrong. Then pull it from the market, correct it, put it back out, fix it, just like you would, uh, you know, a car. Uh, they go, oh, we got to pull this off the market and fix a problem, put it back out. People don't do that though; it doesn't work that way. So that book stays out there, and and that is unfortunate. Um, and the only people educated will be readers of Ripperologist, I assume. That you know, when the next issue comes out, and we see the review, and people who are on the forums and, and Casebook and maybe certain Facebook groups where this is going to be discussed. Other than that, the people at large are paying a whopping, in America, 1771 for the Kindle edition. And then, I don't know, what is it, 28 bucks or something for the paperback. That's a lot of money. And uh, so, uh, and just like me, when I, I sell my books, you know, I'm asking you to spend money to buy it I want you to feel like you got your money's worth out of it. And I think I've, del I feel like I've delivered on that. I've heard I've had, um, but a, a suspect book is very different animal. Um, because we want to read a good case and we want to read an accurate case and we want to learn new things we didn't know before. So from what I understand with Drew's book, it's not giving us anything new or relevant in the torso murders. Uh, in the Ripper murders, and then the suspect argument, these are the three pillars, the Ripper murders, the torso murders, and the, the argument for the suspect, all three fail in, in their obligation to us, the reader, and that is an unfortunate thing, um, and it can be rectified if he wants to. He can pull the book from sale uh, through his, his publisher, Amberly, or um, he can uh, request that revisions be made at least to the uh, the uh, Kindle version. Um, 
we'll see what happens with that. But that, that rarely takes place. Yeah, or you'll see some authors come out with a revised and updated, like you had mentioned, um, you're considering uh, revising and updating Ripper Confidential, I believe. Um, and make holiday murder. I considered that while I was writing those books because my thought process was if things go the way I plan, new information will come out um, and that will require updates and revisions. That yeah. was the plan all along with both books. It's, and I'm like, please go out and find stuff. Prove me wrong. Do, do what you find new things because that's what's exciting for me in Ripperology. Um, and it's rare. It's rarer and rarer as we go on. To where I, I find new things, um, that interest me. RJ Palmer made a thread recently that was fantastic, uh, about a suspect. It took me back in time, 10, 15 years reading his thread and, and the different authors and what they, you know, had, uh, put into this and debated it. And, and it took me back in time to when this was a more common thing in Ripperology, the process of discovery and not just discovering facts. Um, like in Ripper Confidential and, and Bank Holiday Murders, a lot of the material I used had been around a long time. But, um, you know, it's, you've got to put them together and then, and then provide a context around them. And, and RJ Palmer had done this and I found that very exciting. Now, there is, you know, uh, I want to say something too. I've seen a lot of some posts recently that are talking about academics stay out of Ripperology. Um, because to date they really haven't offered us anything. But that is terrible. That's, that's, that's no better than the academic saying ripperologists are a bunch of amateur assholes. Um, you know, academics, everyone, you know, carpenters, uh, I don't care, are welcome to come in and research and write books. Um, but it would be nice if they became a part of the community that they're, you know, uh, pretending to serve, you know, the, the, certainly hawking their wares to. When they put out a book, they're hawking their wares to us. You know, slapping us in the face with one hand while taking our money with the other is not going to endear you to us. So come in, be a part of the community, become one of us, learn from us, work with us, and then publish a book you can be proud of and that we can and will support. And because uh, some of us have, you know, um, pretty good reach on the Internet to people to where if we recommend a book, it's just going to automatically start selling some copies. Um so, you know, come and do that. Be, be a part of our group. But also Ripperology, you know, just because someone has, a, you know, letters after their name um, doesn't mean automatically they're a pompous asshole who's just going to come in and treat you like children. Give them the benefit of the doubt if you want them to give it to you. And, and that's, you know, that's true with, with anyone. So um, that's been another debate is about academics. And this has gone on for 20 years, you know, academics and Ripperology. They, they're kind of oil and water. They really are. I don't know that they, they mix real well, but um, there, there are exceptions to every rule, and we should be open to those. And I will say this from my own experience. Ripperologists, by and large, don't like to have their dogmas um, uh, messed with. Like when I put out Bank Holiday Murders, and I essentially proved that, um, uh, it's that uh, Reed determined Paul, probably Paul had been lying about the soldiers and spending the evening with Tabram. Which is significant. This has never been in a ripper. And I demonstrated that um, very well, I feel. And, and to Drew Gray's credit, he takes that on board in his book. Uh, and everyone should in forthcoming ripper books. Uh, a lot of people didn't like that because they had, and for no other reason really than their whole lives, they'd been told that Pearly Paul and Martha were friends and spent the evening with soldiers. 
And to take that away from them, to force them to rechange their thinking, is not is not fun for some people. Um, and then I did that like 50 other times across the two books, attacking these dogmas, but not just for the sake of doing it. It was because in my research and my spending time understanding the material, these things came to the surface and were unavoidable and had to be presented to the people and, and to the other readers for consideration. And, uh, and if they're uncomfortable with it, they can choose to ignore it, and some have. I think if you're writing a book, you can't do that. You have to, and that's nothing about Drew's book, although he, he misspelled my name throughout the entire thing and, and many other authors' names he misspelled, which is inexcusable uh, for a historian. But, and he misrepresented some of the information bank holiday murders. What bugged me the most is he didn't read or incorporate the information in Ripper Confidential. If, especially if you're writing a suspect book, you need all the best information, most up-to-date information you can get to build your case and to test your case and to not bother to read a book that has now been out for over two years. Um, that is at the top of the, you know, towards the top of the list when you search Jack the Ripper. Or they did read it and didn't, and maybe it contradicted their theory and chose to leave it out. I don't know, but it wasn't in there, and that that's not very impressive. One of the first things I look at in a Ripper book is what what are the sources? You know, I expect to see certain names in a good book, um, uh, you know, in certain works, uh, you know, that they've uh, sourced. And if I don't see that, then I I you know lose a little trust in that author because I I feel like maybe they didn't do their homework. Um, in my books, I tout the casebook and forums because, honestly, uh, those books could not exist without those resources. They absolutely would not, in any form, exist without those two resources. Uh, and uh, and, and for it's blowing my mind that anyone would spend a long time researching and writing a Ripper book without utilizing those resources. It's, it's mind-blowing. Do you think that... Um are you pretty cynical? Uh, I, I admit to being fairly cynical going forward where it seems like, like when, um, Hallie Rubenhold's book was announced, a lot of us were pretty excited about it and we're, we're really hoping that there was new information and, and, um, and even the, the, the experts uh, on the internet message boards, you know, we're still pretty, um, highly uh, anticipating any new information she might have discovered on like Mary Kelly and things like that. And the same as it was with uh, Drew Gray's book where, you know, everyone was pretty highly anticipating these books, but, but we, but, you know, for the second time in a row in a, in a very short period of time between these two books, uh, we've been really disappointed. Do you think, um, Eventually, I mean, this is just going to happen time and time again to where it's kind of like a boy who cried wolf syndrome, where eventually we'll just stop paying attention. Um, or do you think that there will come a point when authors, um, especially those who are considered, you know, outside, quote unquote, of the field, will take all of these suggestions on board and really deliver us a book that we can say, yes, this is what I was hoping for. They did their homework. Uh, there is new information in it. Um, I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. 
Are our standard and also are our standards just unreachable to that extent? Or, or, you know, is, is that something that can be achieved? You know, well, well, I, I mean, I've achieved it twice. I've put out two different books that no one had ever read before. And I mean, even people who said, well, I didn't agree with a lot of what he said or, you know, or anything he said, I enjoyed the books because I'd never read them before. And, uh, you know, and I'm going to do it a third time too. It's going to, I'm going to put out another book that will, you know, blow a lot of minds, I think. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, if, if I can do it three times, surely other people can do it at least once, you know, especially considering, like you said, we're all not experts. Oh, there's a ton of stuff I don't know much about the torso murders. I'm dying, dying for an ultimate book on those. Um, and I mean, I, I'm convinced one person can deliver it. Um, but I'm, you know, I held my hopes out. Uh, when Hallie's book was announced, I was excited because I read that a historian was going to write a book on the lives of the victims with new information. Who wouldn't be enthused about that? It was only when I heard, oh, she's going to argue that none were prostitutes, I lost all confidence in the book and never regained it. I pretended to be, you know, but it, and it turned out to be exactly what we thought it would be, which is a rehash of all the stuff we already knew, plus a bunch of made-up stuff to make it unique and sell documentaries and movies. Uh, I was excited about Drew's book. I was, you know, I wasn't ready to sign on to his theory, but the idea that a historian was going to write about the torso murders and, and, and a suspect theory, who wouldn't be excited about that? And it's unfortunate that, you know, it, it kind of came out and was a damp squib, as they say. Um, now, do these two books mean that, you know, I mean, for one, we have a new A to Z coming out, um, where Paul Begg, you know, has brought on new authors to work with him on it. Of course, I'm excited about that. I'm optimistic about that. And I strongly don't think we're going to be disappointed when that comes out. Um, Adam Wood's Swanson book. Are you kidding? That's going to be packed with stuff. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guarantee you, I'm not going to know a lot of this stuff in there. And if I don't know, and I assume a lot of other people want, it's going to be a lot of brand new material. That's very, very interesting. Um, so these are, this is what I'm talking about. These are books that I've just named too, that, um, are going to be totally new experiences for it. My next book will be new experience. Um, are we going to get a bunch of crap books? Sure we are, but that's not new. It's, you know, here's one of my beefs. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, the best music for all of us, the best music that's ever existed is always music magically that happened, that came out when we were in high school. How does that happen? I don't know, but that's just because when it was new to you and you were in a, the right mindset, I still, people talk about, Oh, Donald Rumbelow's books. One of the best, they recommend it to new readers. I'm like, that's the worst thing you could do. His books even are like massively outdated and factually inaccurate, but they do. Why? Cause they loved it when they were a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, they're like, Oh, go read these books. And they named 30 year old books. I'm like, come on, you know, they're going to be way behind the times. Um, Reading that they should maybe read those books at some point, but I don't do that. When I when I I never recommend Donald Rumbelow to anyone. It actually pisses me off when I see old timers doing that, um, because that's not a good thing. You know, they should know if they're hanging out. They should know those books are like massively inaccurate. Uh, we should be recommending the best books from this century, and then tell and then letting them discover the old ones as they go along. But if you start them off with books that are old and factually inaccurate they're going to have to then relearn everything as they go along and we had to do that but you know new people coming on they don't actually have to do that um 
And that's one of the reasons why I don't post on the boards a lot anymore. I, I go to the stride threads and it's like this week I, I revisited some stride threads and they're having conversations that are totally unnecessary because they're going, I mean, they're working off these old books and like, um, and I go in there and I, I look like an asshole because I'm posting and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> you know? so, but what else can I say? I can't jump in on these conversations like I did 20 years ago and you know, it's like I'm, and I'm like, why don't you guys, but I don't want to be a book peddler. I don't want to be, why don't you guys just read Ripper Confidential? It's all in there. It answers all these questions and, you know, and they're like, but maybe some people don't want to. Maybe some people, their joy is to just sit around and to d discuss myths as though they're fact and, and work out problems that have already been solved and are right there. But the, it's that maybe what's fun for them is, isn't reading or learning, but just, discussing it's a everyone's different ripperology is full of all different kinds of people you've got the, the the people who are out you know there are those who build who create and those are there are those who try to destroy there are those factions then you've just got the nerds who just who want to dissect things because that's their hobby and to decide if they're worthwhile or not um and then you, you know i don't know you just got all different and then you got the people it's just a social it's a social outlet like the white chapel society where it's just a social outlet. They can dress up, they can have guests, they can put on plays, they can do things like this. All of it's harmless fun, but, um, and it's all in the same world, but ripperologists are not, in other words, we're not all the same kind of people with the same agenda. You know what I'm saying? Um, I would never think to start a podcast. You did. And, uh, you know, so but my concern is about the thing that keeps all this together is the literature, though. All of that revolves around, in my opinion, the literature on the case. And what I want to, what I would love to see, I can't stop people from writing books. I wish I could. A lot of them would not come out if I could do that. Um, what I would like to do, since I can't stop bad authors from writing bad books, uh, I'd like to encourage good authors to write good books. And if you're coming in and you're thinking, I want to, I want to research and write a book. Um, you know, I would like to help, you know, let them learn from my mistakes, you know, um, uh, and, uh, you know, and the best thing you can do is what books excite you the most, um, write books like that, um, get rid of the tired <clears throat> formulas and let's create new formulas for a new century, a new era in ripperology, uh, times have changed. And, uh, you know, maybe bring back the day of the journal. I mean, when I was coming up in this, I was writing essays in the, in the journals for years and years and years. And that helped me learn a lot of things um, about the process of writing, researching, because I didn't go to college. You know, I'm not a professor. So I learned by doing and over a long course of time and making mistakes and getting them thrown in my face. And, uh, and you learn to respect um, the people you're writing for that way enough to, to try and deliver your best when you put something out. If every writer did that, boy, man, we'd, we'd see a lot, lot, a lot of good books coming out. Thanks for coming on. Oh, dear boss. Such short notice today. Well, I was rambling, uh, uh, you know, and I hope I didn't sound too negative about things because I'm really not negative, generally speaking. But we're discussing something that's actively happening as we speak, which is the the discussion about the the Dr. Uh, Gray book. So uh, I hope people enjoy this. And yeah, I had a good time. <laughs>